Hello and welcome to Kasinatian, Kasayuran, Kasaysayan, Kamatuuran. A show dedicated to discussing the latest topics of Philippine society and politics from the perspective of Filipinos in general and Cebuanos in particular. This is your host, Ryan Dave Rayla, educator and voice in the wind. Today we have a very special guest in the person of Mr. Ron Dakalan. He is a faculty member of uh, UP and he specializes in the politics behind natural disasters. Um, to give some context, so lately in the Philippine setting and around the world today, we have been faced with perhaps the greatest um, natural disaster, rather the greatest um, disaster of um, of this century which is the COVID-19 pandemic and that has paralyzed much of our daily lives for the past um, few months or so and uh, with uh, Mr. Ron Dakalan here he'll be talking to us about uh, the implications and prospects of what we consider as disasters no? and how we can perhaps mitigate these disasters and best understand government responses towards them. So, um, Ron, maayong gabi eh. Maayong gabi. Maayong gabi Thank you for inviting me. Maayong gabi and thank you for, for um, being here tonight with us. Um, Ron, um, to, to, point, to point out lang no, um, about disasters and Philippine setting this has been an ongoing recur or this has been a recurring theme in the Philippines for decades now uh, primarily because um, I, I believe that or rather I I've read that the Philippines has has um, has suffered a lot in, in the, at, the, at the hands or in the hands of uh, natural disasters ranging from typhoons to um, volcanic eruptions like the like the infamous um, Pinatubo disaster of the 90s, etc. Um, with regards to this, I'd like to ask on a personal note, um, why disaster and politics? Why do you specialize uh, on this one? What is your stake for this issue? Right, so thank you. That, that's actually very interesting. But um, I started um, interested in disaster. Well, actually, my um, at the presidential management style in the government during the time of President Philip Roth. So I did not have any special notion in my mind, but I'm a political economist and um, many pieces actually. So during that time, I think we were um, preparing the, the reports were about Typhoon Yolanda, I could say, because at the time, these two um, typhoons were, were the blue typhoons that hit the country and they were out doing, they have a depression efforts for the place. And from that on, I realized that uh, a lot of the aspects of disasters does not just have to do with restaurants, does not only have something to do with um, looking at the technical side, which is more of the strength of the typhoon, the direction of the typhoon. But a lot of the aspects of disaster has to do with planning, with how do we manage our development, how do we approach policies in place, how do we communities ready for um, disasters. So I thought that um, disaster is a very political uh, topic. So that 
is where I came into this. Um, and it got the curiosity and imagination. Uh, and it's also it's also uh, a difficult thing in the country because we are, as you said, we are one of the most disaster-prone countries in the world where some of the people who are in the world so I thought it was uh, a very interesting part that we can study on. Mm, I see. So it's a, uh, it's um, you you de- you develop this interest over time, no? In the uh, in the span of a decade or more. Um, do you see this <laughs> as? <laughs> do do you see this as a sort of let's say as a sort of social mission on your part? Actually, in a way, it is a social mission, but it's also because I think I've been comfortable with the topic because I have been doing research on disasters. Most of my publications in journals are on disasters, and my master's thesis is on disasters. So I think on the one hand, it's just the comfort with the topic, but I don't want to go out anymore <laughs> once you're comfortable with the topic. And the other hand is because there is a need in the country uh, because as, as I said before we're one of the most disaster prone countries in the world and we need to plan better for us to be able to mitigate and prevent the risk of um, mitigate the risk that comes with disasters mm, I see so um, Ron on that on that note no, perhaps you can go to the first talking point that we have for tonight and that is um, natural disasters and politics. What's the what's the bridge between these two? Actually, this is very interesting. Um, I, I think those who have been studying disasters for quite some time already um, know that the very definition of disasters in itself is highly political. It's highly social. When we talk about the definition of disasters, disaster entails. Um, this, for example, typhoons and earthquakes are not necessarily disasters because we often feel that when there is a typhoon, when there is an earthquake, immediately there is disaster. But actually, it's not a disaster. If a typhoon happens in the middle of the Pacific Ocean without any human or material loss, it's just a hazard. Mm. But a disaster can occur to areas like Cebu, for example, where there is there's injury, there's economic loss in businesses, that is where it becomes a disaster. So disaster only happens when the hazard causes exposure to a population and it causes human and material loss. When those things interface, that is where disasters happen, when people are affected by natural hazards. So in that regard, if disasters talk about social impact or impact people, then it makes disasters highly political because the effort then for you to in disaster risk management is to decrease the amount of human and material. So that is where politics come in. It comes in naturally um, for politics and disasters to come in. Although in, in, in science and public making, most, mostly you know, we have natural scientists who are studying disaster risk management, and it's perfectly okay. However, disasters are called wicked problems. They're both complex, they're both multiple, fa- multiple factors, so they cannot be studied by the natural scientists alone. So we need to have um, social scientists, and most importantly, in transdisciplinary approach, 
no longer in the term multi-already in the transdisciplinary approach. The transdisciplinary approach involves the community in informing concepts, ideas, and policies. So um, the social scientists, and the political scientists in particular, really have a place to manage. Mm, I see. So that's very interesting, Rono, and I learned something tonight. Transdisciplinary approach. Well, transdisciplinary, this is, um, um, I believe, coming from your discussion, this means that um, disasters are complex phenomenons or they are complex matters that cannot be dealt with simply by one expert alone. So this has to be dealt with by um, a combination of experts. Kind of like how, for example, in, in warfare, there's what we call combined arms tactics. It's not just um, one kind of, of um, arsenal that we use, but we use different means to overcome no? the, these, um, these uh, enemies, perhaps, or we can call, consider them as challenges to our human existence. Hmm, very interesting indeed. Um, with regards to that, Ron, how would you assess um, the politics of disasters or the politics of, of hazards, as you would call them? In, Philipp in the Philippines. So, uh, first, I think I'll just go back a little bit with transdisciplinary studies. In transdisciplinary studies, it's beyond discipline. But no longer the disciplines can solve the problems because it transcends, it means the people involved in concept creation or in knowledge production. That's why it's trans, beyond discipline, no longer just among the problems. And in that regard, um, because of the, uh, we're talking about transdisciplinary sciences here. When you look at the politics of the pastor in the Philippines, actually our laws uh, have been very good. Um, I, before coming to the I was with the National Disaster Risk Reduction and Management Council at the Office of Civil Defense. I was there for a very short time, actually not, not more than a year. But I was able to see um, in a lot of um, forums, in a lot of um, expert discussions in, in policy that our laws are actually quite advanced. When you look at um, the Republic Act, uh, it was one of the first ones actually that encapsulated uh, a proactive approach. Because it used to be that the old paradigm is when disaster comes, you manage it. It's very active. The proactive approach is you prevent disasters from happening in the first place. And our, our disaster risk reduction and management that we are in framework that is adopted in our A1121 encapsulates the preventive approach to prevent disasters from happening in the first place. Um, however, while our laws are good, uh, I think uh, in a lot of forum that we went to, yeah, particularly among talking to local government leaders, talking to community leaders, there's always a problem of cascading the good intentions of the local, the local government units. So we really have a problem uh, when it comes to that. Particularly, I think there's a lot of problems that we can talk about, but I think one of the biggest problems is how do we professionalize the disaster risk reduction and management profession? Because for the longest time, um, we are religious designate anyone to And we think that anyone who do disaster risk management, the military people can do disaster risk management, the health people can do disaster risk management, there has been less effort in professionalizing. And I think 
activist management that requires both aspects of transdisciplinary approach, where both hard scientific methods and management with a community of really competent professionals and paraprofessionals who will be able So, in terms of the politics of this aspect, I'm going to summarize. We have very good laws, very good policies, but we have to, um, to work on cascading uh, them at the local level. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, um, given the given the context, no, given the context of um, what you just said, that we have excellent laws, but uh, very, very, uh, let's say, we have la a lack of professionalization in the disaster risk reduction management sector. Um, do you see, for example, that uh, this is uh, this has something to do with um, how we? How the Filipinos have conducted themselves politically. No, you see um, this as a handicap born out of political realities in the Philippines, especially the politics of um, familial dynasties controlling controlling large swaths of the country, and also as um, as a handicap born out of what we call rent seeking and patronage. Of course, Discussion, but you know, political cultures always have to, um, always permit especially when it's it always um, takes opportunity to extract more rents from this I think in theoretical terms, in more practical terms, the political culture, the political behavior, and the standard operating procedures, they always permit different. Um, Social services, particularly the delivery of social services. In terms of disasters, I do think in a way that this also appeals because disasters and also the assertion political capital. Because in a very short cycles, you have three years, so people need this to respond immediately, right? Particularly in because in large parts of the Philippines are usually disaster prone, hyper prone, or earthquakes. So one measure of a leader is not to deliver in services to his or her constituents is whether they can be able to respond to um, calamities. Mm. So sometimes a lot of political leaders actually respond to those that are with them. One of the things that are with they are unique groups, um, of all things, everything that puts them um, in the individual group. Goods, uh, to the and that uh, it is there. But unfortunately, although we do value uh, those things, the there are a lot of investments that have to be made that are usually not seen. For example, roads that are strong against earthquakes and against typhoons. We only see that. You only see the benefit when there's a very big country that are coming in. Usually, the earthquakes that are coming in, usually they come in many, many, thirty years from now. Um, usually, political leaders do not have influence to invest in those long-term projects because, again, you need to deliver in three years, right? Mm. Um, and you need to have a budget response. And I think it's a result of half-baked democracy. That happen in the Philippines because we have the technology of democracy in the Philippines. So, it was introduced by the Americans. Um, the main goal became being elected rather than the quality of the bureaucracy. And I think we know that because we're going to take 
we know that um, when we look at the pathology of, of, the, of democracy in the Philippines, the democracy produce have food. So somehow, that burden of being elected instead of delivering quality service um, permits or manifests itself in the delivery of social services and disaster risk in each one. Mm. So that's really a tragedy, no? That um, somehow the 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 relief operations are being hijacked by political agendas, left, right, and center. So that's the that's the thing that we are taking away from this portion of the of the conversation, Ron. No, that every that's that the disasters become sources of political capital, as you say, and it has become a a, a fertile ground for the practice of rent seeking or if we call it in Bisaya Pangawkaw, no? The practice of the budget for the Oh yes, the budget as well, no the budget. <laughs> so always about the money. <laughs> so um with regards to that run, let us now transition to the second talking point and that is the impacts of politics in disaster risk reduction. We have covered lightly on let's say politics as um, let's, as a form of or rather not politics as a form but rather disaster as a form of um, politics in the Philippines as it is practiced in in well in quite some time no and we have mentioned for example um, what we call as rent seeking being fostered by disaster risk reduction and it's um, it's hijacking by political interests um, on that regard what do we see as social impacts of politics and disaster risk reduction? Um, when we talk about social impacts, there are not social impacts actually because disasters are usually pointed out as um, sources or cost much more persistent type of right? So I think there is, in the least they have a clue that would be lucky to actually be um, be wrong rather than to cut fire your house to cut fire or you, your house to be flooded, right? Because, um, for example, you flood it, the house, all the materials that are within the house uh, are products of lifelong or generational investments you know, made by the people. So, just imagine in many areas where there are disasters, so they've been losing a lot of. A lot of material, no, and not to mention the human, human disasters. So we know that um, that disasters are causing a lot of uh, a lot more persistent types of, of poverty. And another thing also that I'd like to contact. There's a recent article that we've written for Rattler, um, where we talk about uh, also the cultural differences and the. Uh, just a cultural, how do you say it? But the divide in terms of the language, because a lot of disaster communication are in English, right? So mm -hmm. those people who can understand English are actually better equipped, better informed, and are able to um, better prepare when disasters come. But those publics who do not have access, who are not able to absorb as much information being brought out by government, which are written in English, for example, are also at the distance in terms of being able to prepare themselves. So it's also, I think, an, an issue of urban. I don't know we can say that this is actually minute, but this is actually also very big when it comes to being able to prepare for disasters. And also, some of the poorest areas in the country 
going to talk about social impact, like summer, late, um, these areas in Eastern Visayas are actually areas where there's very high rates of poverty, one of the highest rates in the country. Some areas have more than 30%, 40%, 50% poverty rate. Mm. And they have also one of the highest incidences of disaster. So uh, if I summarize, the disasters are causing um, a much more persistent and chronic type of poverty. And that's one of the major social impacts that we have. And cultural differences and cultural hierarchies that exist in the Philippines, like for example, access to information and the use of the English language, um, is also creating that divide and disadvantage to the poor poverty. So you can see that actually politics is very much um, operationalized in disaster risk management. It's, politics is not just an add-on, but sometimes politics is central to everything that is happening to disaster. Because as we said, Disasters are human construction. There's actually we there's no such thing as natural disaster. There's only human made disaster. Mm. All disasters are man made. are anthropogenic. There's no natural disasters. So if all disasters are man made, so a lot of them has to do with organizing, with planning, with implementation, and a lot of those are concerns with politics. Mm. That's a very uh, that's a very loaded concern. No, that's a very loaded term that you just released. Disasters are man-made rather than um, natural. So I apologize for the term that I used earlier. And I said man-made uh, natural disasters because um, at least that's how the media portrays it in in its in its um, in its portrayal of what's happening. And that's also very interesting because the 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 central point of what you have just discussed is that politics is at the center of it all and in fact i believe that you have mentioned as well that disasters have entrenched inequalities not just not just political inequalities but economic as well as social inequalities in many regions in the philippines and have kept people in poverty but not disasters alone no but the the politics behind those disasters and the politics of the area also defines um, who gets to be to be stuck in a vicious cycle of poverty and of course dependence upon the resources of those in power so mm, very interesting so that's quite deep but um to add to add lang concept to add uh, to add more depth to the discussion that we're having right now um does for example does um do politicians? No, this is this can be very controversial, especially for the for the listeners. Do politicians, let's say, um, allow disasters to happen? Do they allow it to happen simply because they know they can benefit from it? <laughs> it's actually a very difficult question. I don't know. I don't have any evidence of that of that. Um, that happening yet. I haven't looked into it yet, but if I look something into it, I know there are a lot of conspiracy theories here and there, but if I look into actually, maybe we can discuss it the next time, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Mita, no? I mean, that's uh, that's uh, that's really uh, on the fringe side ng a question, but um, it, it really brings to mind, uh, but uh, it really brings to mind coming from the discussion that we're having uh, tonight, that um, perhaps if if it really if it really entrenches inequality and this is this is one of the things that many political scientists have been talking for quite some time that inequality breeds 
let's say um, the creation of dynastic rule like um, like uh, political dynasties which are which are very prevalent in the Philippines it brings to it brings to mind um, the, the coincidence or rather the, the convergence of two factors one high poverty incidence and then another is that many of these areas stricken by high poverty incidence are also ruled by dynastic um, families that have stayed in power in let's say even in the democratic framework of the Philippines for for decades on end so that's what that's what gave rise to the question that I was saying earlier that um, do they allow this to happen because it really entrenches their power no? or somehow it's just a coincidence of those factors perhaps <laughs> actually anthropologists um, have a very good way of doing this uh, where there are contours that are unclear that is where you go uh, I think what you just mentioned is actually uh, a contour that was not so maybe we can just touch on that later on but, um, yeah, I, I think that this is a very interesting uh, topic to look into Later on. But I know you're right. I, I think when we talk about, at least in, in, in talking about ideas and concepts here, but when we look at areas where there is high political dynasties or chronic incidents, where there's a, there's a political dynasty that's been there for a long time, there is no incentive to really And when we have disasters that are being exacerbated by climate change, because let us remember, the kind of disasters that the Philippines is experiencing right now is no longer the kind of disasters that our ancestors or people from previous generations are experiencing. Because the kind of disasters that we have now are stronger, they're more frequent, they're more unpredictable. So it needs a very flexible and innovative types of governance. So in areas where there are political dynasties, in theory, and we have to validate this with case studies, usually there is um, in a by default less incentive to innovate. Because why do you why, why is there an incentive to innovate when you kept on winning elections time in and time out? So um, maybe I think this is one thing that we can look into also in the future. If those areas that have high incidence of our long histories of political dynasties are not able to cope when there are disasters. But definitely I think it, when you look at it in, in, in theory, um, there is really less incentive to it in areas where there are um, political dynasties. But I, I'd like to point one case that is very interesting, and that is the case of Maritina, where I, I actually recently released a, a, a journal article on critical junctures in disasterist management, when Bayani Fernando and the wife um, were actually ruling Maritina for for several decades. These were political dynasties, but there were different kinds of political dynasties. They were enlightened political dynasties because there can be also areas in the Philippines where political dynasties are enlightened. Not I'm consenting political dynasties, but that is what is happening on the ground. Um, some political dynasties uh, take good policies as their political capital. It can also happen, as I said, I look into Marikina where they created an innovative office, the Marikina City Disaster Risk Reduction and Management Office, and before that was Rescue 161. They were creating their own, they created their own disaster risk management office at the local level, long before RA 101 was passed. Actually, I think around 20 to 15 years before the law was passed, and they were already ahead of time. And these were political dynasties. 
So there can be also possibilities of um, political dynasties actually indicating that you need to have enlightened political dynasties. Now, how, as to the question of patterns, do we see patterns where areas without political dynasties are performing better in terms of disaster risk management, or those that has um, that has political dynasties that are performing badly? I think those are the things that um, we as academics should should look into. Um, very exciting areas that we can look into as political scientists and political economists for specializing in disasters. Those are a lot of research that we can do later on. Mm, yeah. I see. That's very that's very insightful, Serno, and perhaps we can collaborate on that in the near future. <laughs> anyway, um, we move to the third and last talking point. We talk about future prospects of the topic at hand. What do you see as the future of um, disaster and politics in the Philippines? Will the pattern continue, as we have mentioned the patterns earlier? Or will there be, let's say, um, new challenges and new... Um, new opportunities to rise above the challenges of the 21st century because um, as, we, as you have mentioned that the disasters that we are facing today are far different than the disasters that our parents and grandparents and even the generations before them have faced so what do you see sir as, uh, as to the future no? to somehow augur what is, what is going to be fun to, to be happening soon perhaps in terms of policy, I think there will be a lot of, um, there should be a lot of innovation because as we said, disasters are getting worse, the patterns, the frequency are, are changing and the magnitude definitely has been increased. So there should be some innovations and I, I think we kept on seeing that now, right? So especially with social media where people are now actually can demand direct accountability from their leaders. So actually, I'm quite hopeful that maybe in the future there is more um, accountability on the part of, of political leaders to innovate and to deliver, and not just the only, not just the other. Because COVID-19 exposed, uh, I think if there's, I don't like the COVID-19 for its effect, but if there's something that COVID-19 has done, it exposed politicians who were uh, used to the whole out culture, but when there's disaster, they give really goods. Because you are dealing with disasters that last for five days, one week, two weeks, but with COVID-19, it lasts for almost six months now, going into one year. So the whole out mentality will never work in the kind of COVID-19, so in the kind of disasters such as COVID-19. So I think it exposes the kind of policies that uh, politicians that it no longer, the pull-out culture and politics do not work, that you really need hard science, not evidence-based, but evidence-informed. What, what is the difference? Because some scientists tend to be snooty, that they think everything that science produces is immediately accepted by the people, and that's evidence-based. But what we need is to transition to evidence-informed, where we understand science has to be deliberated by the people has to be embraced by the people, has to be understood by the people, and has to be co-created with the people. So that is how the transition came in. And now I move on to the academia. Um, sorry to say, but I, I mean, I'm a political economist, but I do think that the future is really transdisciplinary. It will be very hard to explain wicked problems like disaster from 
internet, political science, political ethics, and all. Although, of course, there is value in disciplinal, uh, in disciplinal perspective. But the tendency sometimes of disciplines, for example, you study disaster, you just look at power relations if you are a political scientist. You look into the losses and uh, economic costs if you are an economist. Uh, we need more transdisciplinary perspective where social scientists are actually working with other people in different disciplines. We're working with biologists, we're working with chemists, we're working with meteorologists, we're working with geologists, and most importantly, working with local communities in knowledge co-production. So I'm a little bit of advertising. Um, that's the reason why I shifted from social sciences to human ecologies. I'm now part of the College of Human Ecology. And human ecology is one of those approaches really that is transdisciplinary. And um, it recognizes that um, not one discipline and not the academia in itself can, can solve um, or can study the problem, that it needs to co-create knowledge. So in summary, I do think that there is greater opportunity for innovation in politics, but there needs to be also innovation in the theories and the knowledge that we produce, because theories and practice actually should not fight each other, because theories inform policy making. And how do we, as academics, do better in informing policy making? That is not being snooty. You know? That is by not being snooty, by not being confined in our, in our own world, by not um, segregating problems so much, by, by thinking in terms of just the eye of our discipline or the perspective of our discipline. But I think by having the humility to work with other disciplines and to work with communities and producing knowledge. So I think. Um, Academics have are really uh, ha really have a responsibility to co-produce knowledge so that in the end we can produce. Uh, there is a term that we will be releasing in a new publication what we call hybrid policymakers and hybrid academics. Hybrid policymakers and hybrid academics um, co-create knowledge together, co-create policy together with community. And I think um, that is what we want to have in the future. But uh, as I said, you, I don't want to be. Um, I don't want to be hopeful and hopeful that hopeful but um, blindly hopeful because any change in society has to be deliberate, right? So if do we see a brighter future for policy, do we see a brighter future for theory and academia in the Philippines? I, I'm not sure. Because um although there is the condition that I said, because everything has to be deliberate. So scientists like you the, the listeners um, have to make deliberate decisions collectively for us to improve because nothing in society, nothing in, in human life, nothing in, in our in our country happens uh, by accident. It has to be purposive. And I think as a social scientist, that's what we learn when we go to our first social science class, that everything is purposive and everything has to be deliberate. Mm. Okay. So... Thank you, Kaayo, for that one, Sir Ron. No? And um, let me just read some of the highlights for tonight. Um, you mentioned about evidence-informed approaches to policy making. In particular, I like this quote very much. Science has to be deliberated and corroborated by the people. And also, in relation to that, you mentioned that academics must have uh, the responsibility to co-create knowledge and policies with the community and this is this has something to do with what you have mentioned throughout the the session 
or throughout our conversation as transdisciplinary approach in the analysis of disaster and politics. And so with that, um, Sir Ron, I think we have exhausted our talking points and our time as well. Thank you for um, this wonderful conversation with you tonight. And um, I hope we can collaborate more on other fields as well, no? especially um, what we have just proposed tonight as a possible as a possible study. <laughs> and um, yes, as you may have known, Siguro Saron, um, I'm specializing or I'm trying to make a niche for myself in the study of water politics in the Philippines. <laughs> Perhaps in the near future, we can collaborate our studies on this one. Okay. But for tonight, thank you, Kayo Sir Ron, and um, hopefully we can we can catch you more on more of the episodes here in the Kasanite and podcast. So thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Okay, and thank you as well for listening to the Kasin to the Kasinati and podcast. You may follow us on Facebook at facebook dot uh, facebook dot com slash Kasinati and podcast. We are available on different channels such as Spotify. Google Podcasts, and Anchor. Um, for more information, kindly visit the Facebook page. And also, um, we have, we are going to release more episodes in the coming months and in the coming weeks, especially um, we are releasing every Friday and Mondays. So please tune in to the podcast. And this, is, this has been your host, Ryan Dave Raila. Thank you and good night. We will catch you on the next one.